According to Billboard, the Hot 100 chart, the first two decades of the century. What a convoluted sentence that was, wasn't it? From 2000 to 2019, there were 365 songs that had love in the title that hit the Billboard Hot 100 chart. That's a little bit of an easier mouthful to say. Beyond that, there were more than 365 books that have love somewhere in the title because guess what? People like hearing about love. They like reading about love. They like seeing characters who are in love or have the chance to fall in love because that's like the Beatles said, all we need. Well, they said all you need is love, but I'm broadening it to be all of us. We just want someone that loves us. We just want to love someone. Sure, we might want other things too. We might want like a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch or to not have 17 different insurance companies trying to send you bills all at once. I would like for the AARP, who notoriously serves people who are 50 years or older, I would like for them to not send me a welcome note to the AARP when I have not even turned 35 years old. Nothing like prematurely aging yourself by about a decade and a half. You love to see it. And there we are talking about love. Again, Emma Berry is a teacher, novelist, recovering academic, and former political staffer who lives with her high school sweetheart. That's a lot of love. And menagerie of pets and children. And has written many, many books on love. She has a writerly ethos that says for her characters, love is hope, love is optimism, love is a talisman against all the bad they see in the world. And I like that. You can probably tell I was smiling while I was reading that because I think that's a very nice sentiment and statement. And maybe we can all have a little more love since there's a lot of bad, a lot of dark out in the world. So throw some hearts people's way. Emma's newest book is called Funny Guy. She also released the book Chick Magnet, which made it onto the New York Times small town affairs list her second time on the New York Times. All kinds of excited. We're talking about how she manages to write so many words, so many books, even though she's got a full-time teaching job. She's raising twin 12-year-olds. All these things going on. She still finds the time to write good books, promote them. Come on wonderful podcasts like this one. <laughs> a little modesty. Never hurt anyone. I think by the end of this episode, you're going to feel very inspired either to write or to go out and try something new. You'll be smiling by the end of it. You'll learn a lot. All kinds of wonderful things. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, it's been a while since I've said one of these housekeeping things, so perhaps going away from that for a little bit and coming back might inspire you. Shoot me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Of course, you can also follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at GPCT Podcast. And perhaps most importantly of all, send me your favorite corny joke. Every episode ends with one. If you're new here, hey, that's a little bit we do. If you've listened before, you know you've got some corny jokes added to your arsenal. Thanks to the show. But I always crave more. So send whatever you got. Love to hear them. Of course, I'll give you a shout out. So how about that? You're contributing to a podcast and you're getting a shout out. That sounds like a win-win to me. I'm Joey Helm. This is Good People, Cool Things. And here's my conversation with Emma Berry. To kick it off, can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? 
Uh, of course. So my name is Emma Berry, um, and by day I am a college English instructor, and by night and by weekend I am a romance writer. Um, and I live in Virginia with my high school sweetheart and our 12-year-old twins and a menagerie of pets. And let's see what type of elevator we're in. Well, probably something that is uh, rickety and doesn't work especially well. <laughs> it seems like the kind of elevator I have the most experience with. Wonderful. Now you say a menagerie of pets. What are we talking here? What's for the people at home? We have a dog and a cat, which is very standard. And then I have a flock of backyard chickens. Um, at the moment we have four hens. And then we also have two gerbils. Very nice. Very nice. I like that is a good, I think menagerie is accurate. I like that. <laughs> We've got lots to talk about, but I want to hop back because I think this is always fun. Do you remember the first thing that you ever wrote? The first thing I ever wrote. Oh yeah. Um, um, my romance reading origin story starts about twelve years ago. Um, when my kids were born, I met their tw- their twins, and so I was sort of on semi maternity leave from grad school, and was talking with one of my professors, and she mentioned she was teaching a romance novel in this class on women's popular culture, and I was like, well, that's fascinating. I've never read one of those, and so I literally googled like, what's the best romance novel ever, um, and because I was going to read one, right? So it's going to be the best one. Um, and so I read that book, which was Loretta Chase's Lord of Scoundrels um, from just some random list I found on a blog. And I loved it. And so I was like, this is great. And I spent the next like six months like nursing my children and reading romance novels. And then something happened, which had never happened to me in a lifetime of reading literature. I um, mean, I was in grad school, like getting a PhD, studying um, newspaper novels, but I, I suddenly got the urge to write a book and I was going to write a romance. And so I sat down and I wrote this book and it was terrible. It was so bad. And I was so angry. It was, it's, it's a completely irrational reaction. But I was like, I've been reading novels my whole life. I should be better at this. And of course, reading novels and writing novels are like distinctly different skill sets. But I was incredibly aggravated that this first, I wrote it during NaNo, um, National Novel Writing Month. And I was so annoyed. This book was so bad. And so it was almost my annoyance at my badness that kept me writing um, because I was just determined that I it had to be better. It had to be better than that. So that terrible first nano novel, which will forever sit in my hard drive and will never see the light of day, that is the first thing that I that I read, or pardon <laughs> me, that I wrote. I was going to say, can we get like a sneak peek at a line or something from, or a scene where you're like, oh, it's just truly bad? <laughs> it was, oh, I, would, I would never start, but I would say I had a very common problem, which is that I wrote a very self-inserty type book, which is that, I mean, write what you know, right? That's the advice. But I think sometimes writing something that's really like too close to what you know leads you to write a very like thinly fictionalized version of reality. And that's not, that's not good because then it just is very you're just like working out your own problems, your own feelings, or like everyone should sympathize with me here. And then it's about you and it's not about the reader. And so I think inher- I think a lot of people do this. I've read novels for people who are early in their writing journals where I can sort of feel that the same thing is happening. And I just, it's, it's not good. You got to get out of yourself a little bit. Now we'll go from probably your worst work, I would assume, if it's never seeing the light of day, to at least something that's been nationally recognized your book chick magnet which was featured on the new york times small town affairs list and i feel like i don't know 75 percent of the people i talk to whether they're writers or otherwise one of their goals is to be featured in the new york times so perhaps you're among that 75 percent 
Uh, if not, what was what was that moment like when you you're like, hey, I'm on, I'm in the New York Times. That's kind of cool. <laughs> um, it was very exciting. I've been reviewed in the Times twice, and both times it was like, holy, wow! Like, insert your own adjective here. Like, I mean, I think as a, as a as a reader of news, sometimes I have like a serious critique of the New York Times. You know, can you believe the Times is running that editorial? But then when the Times reviews you, you're like, the Times. The paper of record, of course, right? Like it totally shifts. Um, and so it was, of course, really exciting. With with the most recent one, we knew that they had assigned it for reviews. Like my editor emails me and she's like, we know it got assigned for review. But then you're like, oh no, what if they pan it? And then there was like three weeks where the review didn't come out, but we sort of knew it was coming. And I was so nervous. Um, and so when the review dropped and it was positive, it was like, whew, um, dodge that bullet because everyone wants to be featured in the Times, but nobody wants to get a pan in the Times, right? That's That would be the worst. So so it, it worked out, luckily. Yes. that I, I guess a pan could, because, you know, there's some books and probably extends to movies too of like, it's so bad, it's good types of things, which I don't know if you necessarily want that for your own <laughs> thing. But if it's like, I don't know if there's the trade-off of like a lot of people are reading it and maybe they all disagree with the one. T- I don't know. I could, I could, I would try and spin it positively, but I guess we don't have to worry about that since it wasn't, it wasn't banned. <laughs> that's true. I, I think there could be some value in writing a book that some people love and some people hate. Like maybe then you'd feel good about it. You're like, um, maybe, maybe that would pay, maybe pay off. I feel like the worst would be to get a mad review in the New York Times. Like, it has words in it. You know, like that kind of review. I feel like that are damning with faint praise. Ooh, that that might be the worst of all, actually. Yeah, like a three out of five is not what we're going yeah. for. Yeah, not yeah de- definitely not. I, I would rather write the book that some people love and some people hate than the book that everybody's lukewarm on. <laughs> a question I always like to ask is a question you wish you were asked more frequently. And you've had now 12 years of writing romance novel experience. So why should a wider swath of people read romance? Well, I think there are a number of reasons for that. And and I would say my top two are that it is a genre about two people, sometimes more, but in my books, two people, um, who are becoming the best version of themselves and learning to be vulnerable in order to find love. So it's it's a Romance fundamentally is about transformation and hope. And I guess that would be sort of my second answer is that I feel like romance is a candle in a dark world. And I would say the last like seven, eight years, it's been a very dark world. And, you know, romance is about two things. It's the, the love story is fundamental to the arc of the book. Um, and then it guarantees you a happy ending. And I think that guarantee of the happy ending is part of what people who maybe don't read romance don't like about it or think they're not going to like about it. You know, isn't it formulaic? Don't you know the end um, when you start? And I don't really think those things are true. I mean, in mystery, you know, you're going to find out who done it at the end of the book. So I don't know that knowing that the couple is going to be together at the end is really a spoiler necessarily. If the book is done well, it's about the journey. And like you you can enjoy that journey with all of its twists and turns, with its bleak moment, and you can enjoy it 
safely, I think, because you know that the couple is going to be together at the end. So for me, it's about seeing how the writer is able to pull off that magic trick of convincing me both of the bleak moment, but also of the happy ending. And so I, I don't know that for me, it doesn't feel formulaic. If the book is done well, it feels actually like I've just seen something astonishing um, because they've taken me on this journey into, into the heart of darkness, but then it's all turned out um, you know, well when it's over. So when you're writing your books, do you have like do you have a sense of what that bleakness is gonna be? Like is that what you're kind of tackling first? Are you doing it in an order like that? Or is it like let me get the ending settled and then I I can kind of work my way towards that? There are times when I know exactly what the bleak moment is going to be. And so it's kind of writing up to the bleak moment and then solving the puzzle of that. And sometimes it's a little vaguer. My book that is coming out in May, which is called Funny Guy, in the proposal, like the bleak moment scene was actually like I described it in great detail. And like there were lines in the proposal for that book that are in the scene. So there I knew exactly what the conflict between the characters was going to be and exactly how that conflict was going to explode in that that bleak moment. But then sort of solving it was tricky because I'd almost put like too many obstacles in their way and it it almost made the happily ever after unbelievable. And so like I had to kind of massage that. Other times, like with Chick Magnet, I had a vague sense of it. I had a sense of how the external plot was going to propel them into the bleak moment, but actually getting the emotions right in that scene was a little bit trickier for me. Um, And so it sort of depends on the book. I wish that I had like a process that worked for every book, but sometimes I think you have to figure out how to solve that puzzle. You know, once you're in the puzzle, you can't plan it in advance. Yeah, I know writing... Uh, coaches or, or websites or whatever always talk about the outliner versus the pantser mm-hmm. type of thing. And I found, and wh- whether it's even writing, you know, something as basic as like an article versus a full book, that it really does depend. Like sometimes you're you're feeling it, you're like, yep, seat in my pants, let's go. <laughs> and then other times it's like, no, I will fall apart if I don't have a plan. So I like that there's not a process because I think that's more realistic of how writing is. Like sometimes you're, you know, you're going to have a rush of creativity. Sometimes you you go through NaNoWriMo and it's like, oh, what have I just, what have I just done? Like, no, let's rip that, rip that up and move on. But getting to write is, is part of the enjoyment, I think. Totally. And I, I have become more of a planner over time. Like when I started, I was pure, pure by the seat of my pants. But even as I have become more of a planner, the plans fall apart sometimes. And I, I love the turn of writing when I'm in it. There are very long periods in my life where I've not been able to get into it. But when you're in that generative space, that creative space, and you're really in the flow, like I come up with way better stuff in that moment than my plan could ever be. Um, at least for me, I think there probably are like pure planners who, um, you know, that works for them. That's awesome. But for me, um, getting into the rhythm of the writing definitely helps me find way better stuff than, than my plan. So one thing I, I wanted to touch on, because you mentioned how by day you're <laughs> teaching English, you're also mm-hmm. raising twins who are, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know if 12 is like, I don't want to say the worst age um, from people I know with kids, but like, I know I was probably the worst as a child as like a 13 year old. I was a very good child though. I'm going to, my mom can, can vouch for that, but I, I was probably at my worst when I was like 13, 14. So maybe it's right around the corner. 
I don't know, maybe your kids are much more well-behaved than I was, who knows. Um, but that's a lot. Like that's a lot to balance in addition to your writing. And you kind of mentioned how maybe you're not always in that sort of creative generative space. So do you try to write something every day? Are you trying to be like, hey, as long as I get like five minutes done, I feel productive? Or is it like when I hit that kind of creative faucet and I feel it coming, like, let's let's hop on, let's do it? I definitely do not write every day. Um, and <laughs> that doesn't work for me at all. And in fact, it makes me feel really guilty because then I'll have days when I'm like, why don't you do more? Emma? And, and even... W- if I write five minutes a day, for me, it makes me feel like I'm moving so slowly through the book that I begin to beat myself up. Um, I try to write two books a year. That does not always happen. And and I, I didn't write two books last year. So like, that's not always the goal, but I'm much more of a feast or famine writer. Um, and like, for example, I haven't written anything in the last like month and a half, which I feel really guilty about. But I know what's happening is that I'm reading and I'm recovering from having a book out in January and revising a book in January. Um, and so I just have to, for me personally, have to give myself a lot of grace to be like, that didn't happen this month and maybe it's not going to happen next month, but it's going to happen at some point. It's going to come back. Um, so I don't write every day. Um, I got to refill the well. Uh, when I am writing, you know, I typically try to write a book in two to four months. It doesn't always happen. Um, but at that point that I am trying to work more regularly, um, but sometimes there'll be a, a gap in the book. It's really common for me to write about 25,000 words take a week off, write another 25,000 words over about two weeks, take a week off, and then write the last third of the book. That's typically how I write, actually. Um, And sometimes I'll show it to people in between um, and just say, how's it going? Like with my book that came out in May, or was coming out in May, I was really worried that one of the protagonists was like, I mean, he is a jerk. Like that's, he just is. But I was worried he was like too much of a jerk that he was like unlikable. And so maybe I'll send, you know, a chunk to friends and be like, so what do we think? Like, is this, is this working? Sometimes I will revise at that point. I know that a lot of the writing coaches and the advice say, you know, write your whole first draft. Don't stop. Don't revise. That's another piece of advice that for me personally doesn't work because sometimes if there's a fundamental flaw early in the book or there's a fundamental flaw with the character, it's not going to be helpful to me to push through until I fix that because then I'm going to write the middle wrong or I'm going to write the end wrong. So I personally would rather fix what's wrong structurally um, and then be able to write the middle maybe closer to how it's actually going to be or write the end closer to how it's actually going to be. But I have found that with just everything I have going on, I, I can't work that consistently. It would be amazing if I could, but it it's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that I can't still write books, you know? Yeah, I really like the how writing every day makes you feel guilt, like would make you feel guilty, which I feel the same way. Like I've read those things like, yeah, just write 250 words, like a thousand, whatever. And then it's, I'm about ready to go to bed. And I'm like, well, now I'm worrying about this too. And I'm just in a an endless cycle of, of sadness. Yes. I mean, I just, I, yeah, I, I if the head advice works for people and I'm I'm a deadline driven person and so I I can imagine how that might work for somebody but I I don't know I feel enough anxiety about my writing without adding more anxiety to myself. <laughs> you got to put some of that down at some point. This was kind of a passing mention in what you were talking about but you said how you'll you'll share with friends sometimes which I think is something I mean I've only written one book and this was something I didn't totally consider I think when I was like first starting it's like wait a minute I have a good source of people to bounce ideas off of, but also 
when it comes time to get reviews for the book, I have a well of people who, in some cases, like it would look cool to have their name on, or like you know, it'd be it'd be a nice network or whatever that they provide as someone that's like featured in the book like that. So, do you have any tips? This is just probably a general like how to get people to do stuff you want to do question. But like, did you do you find it really easy to be like, hey, you know, friend, whatever their name is, can you? offer feedback on this like do you do you give them set deadlines and everything like that like how do you make sure that since you are kind of on a deadline yourself like how do you make sure that they're not being a roadblock for that yeah so i have a group of friends who um i have read for me for a while and i read for all of them um i think it's helpful to develop friendships with people who are at like roughly the same stage career wise that you are and so a lot of the people who read for me now and who i read for are people that I've known since I was pre-published, since before I had an agent, since, you know, a long time ago. And and it and I, I sometimes will ask, you know, hey, like I have this chunk and I'm, you know, I'm worried about this character. Like, can you do a gut check for me about him? Um, and and I will sometimes be like, hey, you know, I'd it's sort of like this that if I send this to you now, is it realistic that you'd have it back to me in two weeks? Is it realistic you'd have it back to me in a month? Um, and and I I typically try to get people at least that long. I do have some really close friends who I can sometimes be like, can can you turn this around kind of fast? And but there that's like that's like super intimate level of writer friend that you can be like, I sort of need like a really fast opinion on this. Um, but yeah, there's there's people I I trust, and then there's there's like a larger circle that maybe when the book is done, um, who I might send it to, um, who whose opinion, not that I don't care about as much because I would never show anything to anyone I didn't care about that much, but who um maybe are not as like intrinsic to my process as some of my closer friends are, but maybe I want like the kind of larger take on the whole piece, right? And then I think there's the people that you send it to when it's done, done, that you're thinking about, will you consider blurbing this? That is actually, I think, the hardest ask because those are usually not people that I know quite as well. Um, And sometimes, you know, I'm not, I don't know, it just feels weird. And in part, I think it's because when you ask someone to blurb, you're suggesting that your audience and their audience might be the same. I don't know, it, it feels, that that ask feels hard to me and weird in a way that like, asking a close friend to beta read for me doesn't feel as hard and weird. Yeah, I I felt the same way where I was like, this is probably a stretch in a couple of cases, but like the worst they can do is, I guess ignore you would probably be worse than saying a no, because then I'm like, oh, did they just not read it? Or are they that disgusted by my ask that they can't even... <laughs> I can't even write back a sentence of no. The worst, I think, would be to have somebody say, I'll consider blurbing it, and then get back and say, no, I can't blurb it. This has not happened to me, but every time I send it out, that is like the nightmare fear in my heart, is that they'll actually read it and then be like, on second thought, no. (laughs) (laughs) I can't write anything nice about this. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be the worst. I think I'd crawl in a hole in the ground at that point and give up. (laughs) It's your latest book. Funny guy. We've talked a little bit about it. And from what I understand, you have a big love of SNL that kind of helped shape a little bit of this, at least. So what what was that like? And I, then I have some follow-up SNL questions. 
So um, when I was in third grade, my family moved from Montana to Dallas, and I was like the hick from the sticks. I mean, like truly, inexplicably, so out of touch with like everything. And so um, I was having a sleepover with this the daughter of a friend of my dad's, and I just really wanted her to think I was cool. And so we're sort of like talking about what we're going to do, and I'm suggesting like we could watch The Little Mermaid. We could watch Aladdin, like they're like classic late 80s early 90s Disney movies. And she was like, no, we're going to stay up and watch the coolest show on television. And I'm like, oh, right, right. Of course. Can you, can you remind me what that is? And she's like, Saturday night live. And so that night um, I was introduced to like early 90s Saturday night live. And I would say throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, that was like appointment television for me. You know, every Saturday night light, watching it live. I can't remember the last time I watched it live now that I'm in middle age. Um, I always catch up with the clips the next day. Um, but it it really defined a lot of my childhood, a lot of my adolescence. Um, from the point where, I mean, when I started watching it, I probably understood 10% of the show. Like a tiny sliver of what was happening on the show was actually comprehensible to me. But it was clear, even when I didn't understand that much of it, um, that something, I don't want to say important, that feels like the wrong word, but that something significant was happening there in terms of the commentary on the show and the comedy on the show. And I was just fascinated by it and intrigued by it. It also was more appointment viewing probably 15 to 20 years ago. But now they upload clips so fast. Like this past Saturday, I would, so I'm in, in Central Time, so an hour earlier from when it, so I guess this would have been like one Eastern, like right when the show ends. And like 105 Eastern, they were already, like I was getting ready for bed and I'm like, oh, let's just throw something on YouTube real quick. And it was already SNL clips from minutes ago. I was just like, wow, they're so, so speedy with getting it online. I, I've become convinced that they must make a lot of money off the ads on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and so I, because I, I have noticed the same thing. And I was like, the only way this makes sense to me is if that's actually like a, a large part of the way that they, they're like funding the show at this point. <laughs> so my other SNL question, because there's so many sketches from over the years, and I think everyone has kind of their favorites that are incredibly well-known. You know, like the cowbell one, of, of course, the 90s yeah. one. What's one that, you think doesn't get as much love as it deserves, like an underrated gem? Um, well, I I love the Lava professors in the hot tub. And I think it's because <laughs> now like I, I was a college instructor, but I mean, I can't say that word without saying it that way. And I think there's very few shows on, I mean, so many sketches, I guess, that I've adapted into my own vocabulary or that are part of the way like my husband and I talk. But that's one where I, I can't say lover. I have to say lover. And so I think for that reason alone, like I carry that one in my heart forever. <laughs> <laughs> have you also eaten a, what does he have, a turkey leg in one of them in the yes, hot tub? It's always it's like, it looks like it's from like medieval times or something, right? It's like comically large. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if this was true or if someone just told me this and I believed them, but they said that at least the first time since Jimmy Fallon notoriously breaks in most SNL sketches that apparently Will Ferrell was like tickling him with his foot underneath the water during that, which both sounds 100% believable and like maybe embellished, but I, it wouldn't surprise me at all. 
I think most SNL anecdotes that we've all heard, and at this point I've read, I'm not going to say every book on SNL because I'm sure there's, there are a lot of books on SNL, but I've read a non-zero percentage of the books on SNL. And I think the embellishment is part of the mythos. Like, I mean, I think at this point, I don't want true SNL stories. I want SNL stories that are 10% embellished. <laughs> Those are always the best stories anyway. <laughs> yes, agreed. Something else that I think is interesting and I haven't seen a lot of is on your website, you have a writerly ethos. Do you think that all writers should have one, number one? Um, well, I don't know if they – I mean, I'm should is like a hard word for me, Joey. So, like, let's avoid should. I, I personally Would you found it, it yes. very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I personally found it helpful to articulate what I was trying to do with my books and what my goals were. And that was something I wrote very early. Um, but I still think is true. It's I, have, I haven't reread it recently. I hope it holds up. But um, it was helpful for me to try and define what my goals were. And again, I, I wouldn't want to say every writer has to do that. I think some people are more intuitive probably than I am. But to try and say, why am I doing this? Especially because I write in a genre that I think for a lot of people seems not necessary. That seems like fluffy, right? And so I, I would actually argue, I think that telling love stories is a deeply human thing to do. Um, and so I, but to try and articulate why I think they're important for me felt like a, a necessary component to my writing journey. It was also part of taking myself seriously because one thing that happened for me as a writer um, is that when I started writing, I, it was kind of accidental, as we sort of talked about a minute ago, and I sort of backed into it. And it took me a while to be like, "Oh wow, I'm I'm really doing this, and like I I want an agent, and I want to be published, and I'm going to be in bookstores, and I'm going to get reviewed in the New York Times." And that took me a while to own. And so I guess writing that ethos for me was part of owning my ambition in a way that I had I at least had some trouble doing. And I maybe not every artist has that difficulty. I think some people know that they're very serious about it from the start. I didn't necessarily. Um, and so for me, that was kind of a stepping stone in um, there's like big jet planes <laughs> flying over my house. I hope you can hear that. Um, but that's part for me, a part of just kind of owning that um, and being like, wow, I'm serious about this. And what am I trying to do? And even though I'm writing fluffy books, what's my goal with them? Um, so for me, that was important, but I, I won't project that onto other people. <laughs> <laughs> no homework assignments for anyone. <laughs> no. <laughs> One other thing that I like to to ask writers about is you've mentioned your agent a couple of times mm -hmm. and I was trying to think of a better way to say this besides like, what was your process for getting an agent? But let's just keep it as basic as that. Like what, what yeah. was that like? How did you go from like, yes, I would like an agent to now I have an agent. Well, I've had two agents. Um, and so I, I, which I think is an important thing to say and to talk about because breaking up with an agent is something that happens to a lot of writers, but something that doesn't always get acknowledged because usually when we hear people's stories, they're like success stories. Um, and sometimes they're more complicated than that. So the first time I queried agents was in 2016. Um, and at that point I had sold some books um, and had published some books, um, but they had not, I'd not had much commercial success. And that was really hard. And, um, you know, I think when you work in a popular genre, for me, like one of the questions that became very haunting was, what does it mean to write popular books that aren't actually popular? 
Um, so like, what does it mean to write commercial fiction when you're not selling many books? Um, and so I queried agents just like straight out of the slush pile the, that first time um, and got an offer really fast, like went from querying to having an offer in a week, um, which was like, well, complicated. Um, and and the, the agent like didn't want to give me a lot of time, which should have been a red flag, but I was like, oh, she's just really excited. Um, and so I signed with her and it was not a not a great relationship. Um, she's a, a lovely person and I think she's a very good agent for a lot of people. She was not a great agent for me, in part because I think she wanted perfect, ready to sell books, and then she wanted to go on sub and negotiate offers. And I was not as in touch with um, myself and my needs as a writer then. And I kept saying to her, like, I'm, I'm really low maintenance and, you know, I'm, I can, I can sort of do my own thing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm independent. And those are things I wanted to believe in myself. Those are all lies. Those are deep lies. I'm kind of needy. I don't want to be needy. I want to be low maintenance. I'm not low maintenance. (laughs) And like, sometimes I need to break down in, in your inbox and I need my agent to like talk me off the cliff. And she was not a talk me off the cliff type person. Her communication strategy also like didn't really work for me. So she was my agent for many years. She never sold a book for me. She never took a book out on sub for me um, because she essentially didn't love the things I was writing. And that in turn led to a huge crisis of confidence for me. Um, I also like finished my PhD around the same time and didn't get a tenure track job. And I have a great teaching job, but it's not the kind of job that I went to grad school to get. And the combination of those things was really freezy for me. And so between 2017 and 2020, I didn't write a book. You know, I went through this three-year period of writing nothing and was considering quitting writing. It was just really dark and really bleak. And so finally, I split with her. And then COVID happened. Awesome timing. Um, and I decided to write one more book. One. One's my number. I feel like it, we keep coming back to this. And so I was going to write a book for me. And it was going to be exactly what I wanted. And I wasn't going to worry about the market. And I was going to write a weird book about chickens. And I did. I wrote a weird book about chickens. Um, and at this around the same time, one of my very good friends, whose name is Olivia Dade, who's also a romance writer, had also split with an agent and had found a new agent um, and and was doing great things with this new agent. And she was, and when I finished my chicken book, I sent it to Olivia and she was like, Can I introduce you to my agent? Um, and, so, and so I was like, Okay, I mean, this is gonna work. Like, I'm skeptical about this whole thing. Um, and so then I met my now agent, and it was just clear that in terms of personality, we were a better fit. Um, And I did go out on wider sub and I received some other very, very lovely offers, but I ended up signing with my now agent and, you know, we've been together for two years and it's just been a much better relationship. But I also think some of that is that I know myself better and I'm confident enough now to be like, I'm kind of panicked about this. Can you tell me that this is okay? And I would not have done that seven years ago. And so I can't blame my first agent. It's not her fault. I was not asking for what I needed. And now I can be like, Sarah, I'm panicked. And like Sarah will talk me off the ledge in a way that I needed somebody to do then, but I was kind of denying that I did, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, I'm glad that even despite the bleakness now, you have entered the light. I was trying to think of a less corny way to say that, but... (laughs) Very great. Very great. I mean, I, it was my bleak moment <laughs> as a writer, and I think that's the promise of romance, right? That there will be an ATA. But um, I, you know, I, I think having that 
dark night of the soul is a, is a good thing. I mean, I not a good thing. I think it's something that happens almost everybody. And that's just when my moments have had that happen. But I'm glad that I persisted. And you know what? If I persisted and we weren't talking because I hadn't sold my book, that would have been good too. I mean, I, I think you got to learn from wherever you are in the journey. And for me, it was just losing confidence in myself and then trying to rebuild it was just part of my journey. It sucked, but you know, that's what happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah. If everything was uh, like Pleasantville, it would get boring real quick. So but, I think yeah. so. Yeah. And I guess you'd live in black and white a lot. And I like seeing colors sometimes too. <laughs> well, Emma, you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And for you, your top three Broadway musicals. So I spent some time contemplating this question. And at first I was like, am I supposed to give him like the top three, like most influential Broadway musicals or just my top three? So I'm going to give you my personal top three, um, which again, I would not project onto anyone. And my my first is going to be Guys and Dolls. And I love this show. I mean, one, it was the first show I ever saw on like actual Broadway, Broadway. I saw the 1994 revival with Nathan Lane in case anyone is curious. It was great. Um, but what I love about this show, there's two romances in it that both have happy endings and they're very different. But I love the specificity of the voice. Like you could take a scene from the show and nobody would ever confuse it with any other show because it's like these like Damon Runyon-esque gangster characters and just the specificity of the language and the way that it bleeds into the songs. I, I just love how it is in no way a generic show where you could pick out one of the songs and put it in another show and have it work. Like Guys and Dolls is very much its own thing. And then my second choice is going to be Les Miserables, which is I think the I think those big mega musicals from the 80s get you know, made fun of a lot for being cheesy and over the top and the spinny turntable and the synthesizer. And honestly, I just love that show. And I still love that show. And again, there's there's a romance in it, which is actually, I think, the least interesting part of the show. But it's so big and it's so bombastic and it wears its heart on its sleeve. And that makes it easy to mock. But like, I'm a, I'm a pretty sincere person. It's an ironic era. Like, this is not a good time for sincerity. But I love how sincere Les Mis is. <clears throat> and then my third choice is going to be A Little Night Music, um, which is Stephen Sondheim. And I mean, I think everyone would expect Ah Sondheim to be on the list, but I think that one sort of gets, it's generally considered, I think, a lesser Sondheim show. I love the characters in that show. You know, there's this opening set of three songs, soon, now, and later. And the way that those monologues sort of define who those three very different characters are and the way that the language that they use is so different. Um, the way that entire show is written with songs in three-quarter time, it's all waltzes. I I just, I love it. And so even though it's maybe a lesser song time, no, it's not Sunday in the park with George, but I feel like the character work in that show is as good as Sunday in the Park with George and it's less sexist. So I'm going <laughs> to go with a little night music. <laughs> Excellent list. All around. I guess I got to go watch some musicals now. I yes, yeah. of course. Always. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emma, this was so much fun. Thank you for taking the time to chat. I feel very inspired. Like I might get some writing in after this. So thank you for that. <laughs> That's like totally makes my night. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. It was absolutely a pleasure. And if people want to check out your writing, learn some more about you, where can they find you? So I'm on the web at authoremmaberry.com, and you'll find links to all of my social media and all that jazz, but I would love to see you, and everybody should read more romance. Lovely, lovely. And we'll drop a link in the show notes as well. 
so people can get to you any way they want and it'll be yes. wonderful well thank you again of course we've got to wrap with a corny joke though as we always do why should you avoid falling in love with a pastry chef i don't know joey why should you avoid falling in love with a pastry chef they'll only desert you <gasps> hilarious <laughs> Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Ooh.